Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. This week is the third and final installment of Story Space at Columbia from the Office of University Life. If you haven't heard part one or part two, go listen to them. We'll wait. But here's a quick refresher. Story Space at Columbia is a new storytelling project that presents personal and inspiring stories from students across Columbia, told to a live audience. Today, we're wrapping up the theme of identity with stories about perseverance, confronting challenges to keep moving forward, and finding inspiration in unusual places. We want to warn our listeners that some of today's content deals with sensitive topics. In our first story, Kiara from the School of Professional Studies, discusses how travel with ballet taught her to work harder rather than give up, asking herself a question that has given her a focused mindset to lead and serve. Hi, my name is Kiara Key, and I'm currently a master's student in construction administration at Columbia University, and I'm here to tell you a story today. So you see, until the age of 17, there was pretty much only one thing in my life, and that was ballet. Um, I danced when kids around me were in school and danced about six hours a day on school days and 10 hours on non-school days. Um, so this whole ballet thing persisted on for about 10 years. And that was pretty much because my mom forced me into ballet. And it was either ballet and TV or ballet and an un- no ballet and an unhappy mother. And if you know anything about Chinese mothers in general, you don't want an unhappy mama. So for about 10 years in my life, ring or sun, I went to a professional ballet school, knowing I would never become a ballerina. And I'm not being pessimistic here. Um, this was an actual fact agreed by most people around me. Uh, my instructor, for instance, hated me. Uh, he openly shared with everyone, Kiara, you have a better chance becoming a boxer than a ballerina. And my peers, similarly, didn't see me as part of the pack, never. They always tried to comfort my partner across the room during practice by saying, it's okay, I'll go with her next time. Like, I can't hear them even though I'm standing right next to my partner, right? So um, you might ask, did you do anything to try to change the situation? Of course I did. I, d- I did everything from kicking, yelling, crying, to not sleeping, to licking an ice sculpture, knowing that my time might be stuck to it forever. And what happened? Nothing really happened. Mom was a pretty tough cookie. But don't get me wrong here. Although I never wanted to be in a classroom, I went to every single ballet classroom wholeheartedly. And I'm not some kind of Forrest Gump here. It was pretty much based on two ideas because first, my mom paid for it. Second, I'm already here. You know, might as well make the most out of it. So what did I do? I was always the first one in, last one out. I stretched whenever, wherever possible. I was on public transportation, stretching. Imagine the kind of attention I would get. And also, um, I just always practice. And my toes were going into the cycle of bleeding, breaking, healing. There was a toe cycle. I just kept on going and going and going. So finally, now I'm getting to the thesis uh, question of my story. What if, what if you know you're not going to get anything out of something? Would you still persist and try hard, given you can't back out of it? Can you persist knowing you will fail? My ballet story may seem slightly distant to some of you sitting here, but think about it. 
We're all and will be that ugly, ugly duckling in that classroom at least once in our life without a choice. So will you still try hard in that required writing class, knowing you can never write as well as native speakers just because you just arrived in this country? Will you still set and strive for goals, knowing you hate your unreasonable job, but cannot afford to look for a second option because you're a single parent supporting two kids? Will you still be taking care of a dying cancer patient uh, with a terrible attitude, knowing no matter how hard you try, you're still you're going to lose him or her very soon? So there are so many situations we're stuck in without a choice. And I think, in my opinion, because I'm from China, I think this scenario can be best described by a Chinese saying called 身不由己. And the direct translation for 身不由己 is your body is not in the control of yourself. So, um, uh, so what if today you're sitting here going through your simple yoji moment? Well, I can't tell you what to do because what do I know? But what I can tell you is what has happened to me after I persisted through my simple yoji ballet life. So the day I turned 17, as promised, my mom said, okay, fine, 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 you can quit now. You don't need to go back. I thought that was going to be the happiest day of my life. But was it really? No. Even up to today, that was the day I felt most empty uh, out of all my days alive. And as I was walking out of the classroom, my teacher ran to me and he hugged me. I was like, whoa, that was the kind of hug you would give to those really talented kids. You know, those kids who would just, you know, never include me as part of the pact. And he said one thing to me. He said, Kiara, you will always have a part of ballet in you. At the time, I was like, yeah, he was just trying to be nice because he unshamefully bullied me for the past 10 years. But today, reflecting upon the past 10 years, I think I'm starting to understand a little bit about the truth behind what he was trying to tell me. So I'm about to show off a little bit. Please don't hate on me. Uh, the year I turned 19, I sold up my first medical startup. Working on that startup was nothing but frustrations and solving problems. I had angry partners, angry suppliers. At points, people were pointing at my nose, doubting my integrity. But I never once thought we would not pull it through because I did it wholeheartedly. And after my undergrad study, I solo traveled to 41 places, uh, taking on long distance hikes. One of my first hikes was in South America and uh, for about two weeks. Uh, every part of my body was dying and friends and family thought I was crazy, just like always. But I did it. I did it because I did it wholeheartedly. And finally, I started a nonprofit organization about three years, well, four years ago in um, helping kids uh, with their role system and education system in Cambodia and Laos. Every few years, I go back. And every time I go back, I'm always under the sun 10 hours a day. And I'm just working, hammering tiles with mud water going up to my knees. And... Um, you might be like, how do you do it? And I'm not even eating good food there. I'm surviving on crickets and drinking very watery Cambodian beers. Um, but if, just like everything else, I have been doing and will always be doing this nonprofit wholeheartedly. So, um, reflecting on my life post-ballet, I begin to understand what my teacher meant by, Kiara, you will always have a part of ballet in you. I will never become a ballerina, but though, but through dancing, I've learned and am still learning about the art of perseverance, the art of not caring too much about unhelpful criticisms, and the art of giving it your all, even though you know you might fail from the very beginning. What ballet has gifted me is not the direct art of dancing, but the confidence of doing things wholeheartedly. So going to the question I posed earlier, what if you know you're not going to get anything out of something? Would you still persist and try hard, given you can't back out of it? 
I humbly suggest you to explore the option of making the most out of that, that situation. Because at the end, you will receive gifts you have never imagined before. And I promise you, those gifts will be always part of you, just like how ballet will always be a part of me. And this is my identity story. Thank you. Kiara found her purpose by putting one bruised ballet foot in front of the other, choosing to persist wholeheartedly. Sometimes, though, we don't get to choose our struggles. In our next story, general studies student Aspen describes a traumatic, painful experience that led her on a powerful journey to rediscover her own strength and capacity to trust again, one mile at a time. Hi, my name is Aspen. Um, I grew up in suburban Massachusetts. I had two very loving, caring parents who were happily married, um, both lawyers. It was a very stable home. Um, two loving older brothers who took really good care of me and were very protective. Um, I'd never had to move. I was never shaken or uprooted in any way. Truly nothing traumatic had ever happened in my life. I'd had a really, really, really lucky life um, until I went to college. Um, I decided I wanted to go to school 2,000 miles away from where I'd grown up um, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, of all places. I went to Colorado College, a small liberal arts school of about 2,000 kids. Um, and I wanted to go there because I wanted to reinvent myself because I'd always been kind of shy and introverted, and I wanted to be cool, and I didn't want anyone to know um, that I'd always been kind of like quiet and I wanted to just like reinvent myself and I was really excited to arrive in this new place far away and on my second night of college um, I had a few friends over, a few new other freshmen over in my dorm room and we watched The Breakfast Club and I was feeling really like, confident and cool and we smoked weed. It was my second time ever smoking weed. And two of the kids left, um, but the third stayed. And on my second night of my freshman year of college, I was raped. And I was devastated. It really shattered my whole new beginning and I no longer felt safe in this new home. And I wasn't really sure what to do, um, and so I reported uh, the rape to the college, and um, the administration discouraged me from going to the police and encouraged me to go through the school's conflict mediation process um, as if a violent felony could be mediated, like a playground fight. Um, but I did. I listened to them, and I testified, and he testified, and the mediator found him to be innocent, um, which meant that they didn't believe me. And they allowed him to remain on campus. And they actually moved me off of campus. And at that point, I realized that my school um, was not going to help me. And there was really nothing that my family could do to help me. And uh, they moved me into this like stained cinder block motel uh, beyond the end of edge of campus that students called the Cinderblock Palace, which was like where you lived if you got like the worst number in the housing lottery. And I really, I could have curled up in the fetal position and sort of just stayed there and atrophied. Um, 
but I decided that I wasn't going to do that. And I think in the aftermath of a trauma, you have a choice. You can stay and wallow and feel sorry for yourself and kind of shrivel, or you can do something. Um, and I decided I needed to help myself. I needed to leave this place, and I needed to go somewhere where I felt safe. And I decided um, that I was going to walk from Mexico to Canada along a 2,650-mile-long continuous footpath called the Pacific Crest Trail that goes through the um, the Anzabrego Desert and then the Sonoran Desert then the Mojave Desert along the LA Aqueduct up through the high Sierra Mountains and then into the volcano lands of Northern California um, and the Cascade Mountains. And I was going to do this alone um, with a backpack on and I was going to pitch my tent every night and survive on my own to prove to myself that I was strong and capable of taking care of myself and that I was safe in the world, in the body that I had to keep living in. Um, and so I did. Um, I showed up at the Mexican border with a little 11-pound backpack with a sleeping bag and a, a tent and um, lots of candy and five water bottles and totally inadequate nutrition, just mostly sugar. And I started walking, and on my first day I saw a rattlesnake, and I nearly stepped on it, and I screamed, and I shrieked, and I ran back south 100 yards, and then I was like, there are going to be a lot of rattlesnakes, and I'm going to have to just get used to it. This is what I've signed myself up for, and I stepped over that snake, and I kept going, and I stepped over another and another, and it's amazing how quickly anything can become normal. And I pitched my tent each night, and I rationed my food, and at one point I ran out of food and I had to hike 64 miles without food um, with a backpack on. I was like emaciated and I kept going and I crossed 220 miles of snow through the High Sierra and I really earned my own respect. I again and again and again proved to myself that I was capable of taking care of myself and again and again I was in situations where I was alone with a man um, or a group of men in the woods because about 400 people attempt this walk every year and 90% of them are men. And again and again, I found that these men were respectful. And if I said no, I wasn't comfortable with something, um, they honored that and my, my no was audible. My voice was audible and I really learned that rape is not normal and most people um, are basically good. And I began to feel safe um, in my body again. And by the time I reached Canada and crossed a border in the Pine Woods, I knew what I wanted to do, and that was to finish college. And here I am. Thank you. Trekking 2,650 miles was Aspen's way to a new identity in life. But what do you do if your proverbial path is a constant uphill battle? Our next one comes from Anthony, another general studies student who chose to thrive in spite of his circumstances, turning his rough background into a catalytic lesson of perseverance. Um, hopefully I can speak loud enough. I'm not used to the mic, but, uh, so I, I guess I'll just start off with identity is unique. It's unique to all of us. And I truly don't think I've found where I belong with regards to identity, but I think Columbia is going to get me there. And so I'll walk you through a very quick, brief snippet of my life and how, how it is I'm developing this sense of identity. Um, 
I grew up in New Jersey, right across the river, born and raised in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I grew up as a foster child in a very abusive home. Uh, at two years old, my mother broke several of my bones and, and, and like really took me down this path, me and my younger brother, which was one at the time, and brought us down this path of something that, you know, developed uh, a, a destructive human being. You know, uh, up until the age of 17, I was extremely destructive. I was incarcerated for upwards of five years as a juvenile, uh, and I didn't know where I was going to go. I had absolutely no idea. Uh, I spent a lot of time in a cell, a lot of time in a cell, uh, whether it be in a foster home, in a room, not being loved as a child, right? So these, these are very unique things that are unique to childhood and development, or being in a cell as a teenager and figuring out, like, where do I belong as a man? How do I develop myself? How do I grow? How do I, how do I prosper? Uh, so what I did was a lot of introspection. I didn't know what I was doing. But now I'm able to contextualize it, and, and that's what I was doing. I sat there and thought about where I want to be, where I want to go. How do I prosper? How do I become a man and not just this destructive human being? So I converted myself from this destructive human being to a constructive human being. And I did that through thought process. Uh, and I used the military. The military was my conduit. I spent nearly a decade in the military. I took what I was inherently, which was a fighter, um, I grew up fighting in the inner city of New Jersey uh, in some very rough, rough places. Um, I've probably been in several hundred fights, fist fights, um, and, and you name it. You think about it, whatever you spins in your head, I've probably been there, done that. Um, but what I took away from that was the ability to, to thrive in some of the worst environments. And I took that, moved it into the military, and I moved into the special operations realm of the military. And it's really what took this idea of... Uh, being a fighter, and it gave me discipline, it gave me structure, it gave me all the things that we find uh, as a human being that define us, right, that move us from this very, uh, very, like, chaotic human being to a very structured human being, and I feel very much benefited from that, and, and then what I did with that after eight and a half, nearly nine years of uh, military service, having been in Afghanistan, all throughout Southeast Asia, several deployments, seeing combat, seeing life, seeing death, seeing all these different things that change the human dynamic. I took that, moved it into Columbia. So for me, identity is unique. It's, uh, it's difficult. It's something that I think we all tang with as much as we like to think that we know who we are, regardless of where you're at, where you've been, and what age you are right now. I think it's something that's gonna continue to evolve you uh, as a person. You're always gonna be introspective in nature. I myself am such. And, uh, and all I wanna say is persevere. Persevere in the hardest, most difficult situations because that's all we can do. All these stories are beautiful and uh, I feel appreciative to get to share mine just a little bit. And uh, at the end of the day, perseverance I think is what defines us as human beings and it is what makes us uh, truly find our identity. So thank you. Sometimes we learn by sticking it out, even when we didn't choose the obstacles in our way. Other times, we decide which path to take, which career to pursue, which school to attend, which life we want to lead. Our next storyteller is Anthony from the School of Arts. Anthony had to leave his comfort zone to discover his passion. Thank you so much. That was awesome. This is nice. This is really like, it's... Awesome. Thank you guys for coming. Um, so yeah, my name is Anthony Jettis. Everybody calls me Tony. Um, I still have a hard time saying Tony. It's my name. Uh, 
growing up, I had a really bad stutter, like to the point that I couldn't even get out my words or thoughts. Um, and I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I took all the classes, and my mom had me see specialists, and it went away when I got to high school. Um, and then in that point of our lives where we're juniors and seniors, you know, we're all thinking what we're going to do with the rest of our lives, it came back again. And I was like, what the heck? I thought it was gone, you know? And so I went to college um, and it kind of went away. It was always still a part of me, you know? Um, but when I got to college, I was undecided what I wanted to do. I picked up philosophy as a major because let's be honest, philosophy is just a bump up from undecided. Um, and so I tried a whole bunch of stuff. I tried all the stuff that my mom and dad wanted me to do, like engineering and computers and science. And I failed at engineering and computers and science and I tried film and English and I tried an acting one class you know because I thought what would get me out of my shell more than speaking in front of people um, in theater and comedy and improv and I loved it it was the coolest experience of my life um, I kept doing it and trying it I tried out for our musical and I'm not really a singer so that didn't go very well but I did it you know I tried uh, I got into the first play audition for my junior year and I got into the improv comedy team which is getting up in front of complete strangers and making up stuff on the spot. So it was all this stuff that I tried to do to put myself out of my comfort zone the most that I could. Um, my senior year came around and the acting thing was going really well, but I still wasn't in the spot that I wanted to be because I didn't get a few roles. And so it was this point in my life where I thought, what, I wanted, what do I want to do? You know, um, I can keep trying this acting thing, which I'm falling in love with. And so I did. You know, I applied to all the schools. I applied to NYU. I applied to Yale. I applied to Penn State. And I applied here, obviously. And... I think looking back at it now, um, one last story I'll say is that in my undergraduate school, we were in this acting competition, right? It was the first play for my university to get to go that I was a part of. And I played this dead soldier. Um, so for nine and a half hours, for four showings of the show, I was dressed in blood and mud and grass and tears and everything else. And I sat backstage for nine hours as a dead soldier. And I thought at the end of the day, I want to do this for the rest of my life. If that makes any sense at all. So. And now that I'm here, I'm going to keep pushing myself and going forward and tackling everything that comes my way. And thank you guys again. This is great. When at first you don't find your way, try more things. Our next storyteller is from the School of International and Public Affairs. Yuvraj tried out several routes until he found a well-rounded way to pursue his goals. Good evening, everyone. My name is Yuvraj Singh, and I'm a first-year graduate student at SIPA. I grew up in a very small, under-resourced family, but with a lot of ambitions. They wanted to live through me vicariously. So since the very beginning, I was pushed to do all those activities and all, take all those classes that they were not able to do or that they thought was necessary for me to be successful. So the struggle of being an all-rounder began at a very early age. And oh my God, it's not fun at all. Every year, I was pushed to take different classes at school. Every semester, every winter break, I was asked to take different activities. I mean, you name it, from cricket to flute lessons, drama to astronomy, political science to painting. I was changing my career goals once a year at least, if not twice. <laughs> and, and all this while, my friends were honing on their skills and shaping their career goals. 
And amongst this confusion of what path to take and this impatience of how to define my identity, I decided that I am going to be the Prime Minister of India. <laughs> Why, you ask? Because it's cool and it's powerful. But most importantly, because it did not require you to be an expert at one given thing. So guided by others' wishes and commands, I was dead set on this end goal. I had no roadmap. And before I could figure out how to, be, how to get there, my parents came up with another suggestion. They suggested that I should take some STEM courses before graduating high school. And surprisingly enough, I did. As a result, I applied and got into Georgia Institute of Technology, officially majoring in aerospace engineering. To catch you up, now I'm studying to be, become an astronaut. Right. Continuing, halfway through the semester, the department head of aerospace engineering pulls me aside in a meeting and he's like, Yuvraj, I think you should drop aerospace and you should instead do industrial and systems engineering. Because supposedly I had some aptitude for operational mathematics. Do you think I listened to him? You bet I did, you know. <laughs> for, the, for the first time in my life, someone told me that I was good at something and they mentored me accurately. And I was not going to let that feeling go away. But switching majors would have meant I would have to justify this decision to my friends, family, and colleagues. I did not want to appear fickle-minded at the least. So what did I do? I told everyone I'm doing a double major in aerospace and industrial. And to seem really convincing, I even attended classes for both the majors. <laughs> I mean, it just about killed me. At a point, I ran out of energy and I gave up on aerospace publicly. In my mind, I was doing the right thing. I was going on this path, which could be my way of becoming an expert at something. Now, I was more confident than ever before. So, you know, that said, I still was uncomfortable because I thought that I might have disappointed those around me. So how do I tackle with this potentially destructive obstacle? I kind of walled myself in from everyone's negative opinions and doubts about my goals, but I kept the door ajar for those who had an open mind and who were encouraging. At this moment of time, I was working hard to be an industrial engineer. Political dreams fell on the back burner, but I never let the flame out. It's quite frustrating to know that you're a jack of all but master of none. You know, you're a generalist in a world which is increasingly seeking specialists. You might be good enough to survive, but not great enough to have an impact, to bring a change, or to begin a revolution, which I really wanted to, for some reason. <laughs> you know, but until and unless you realize and materialize on your potential. While I was walking on this self-constructed path, things started to take a positive turn. Towards the end of my time at Georgia Tech, I got the opportunity to work with World Food Program. It's the largest humanitarian agency whose purpose it was to deliver food and aid to people in conflict zones and disaster hit areas. And I, the master of none, but jack of all, was assigned to pull together a team. I pulled together a team of six students, two who were masters of computing, two who were masters of policy analysis, two who were masters of optimization and supply chain. Over the next eight months, we worked day and night. We analyzed everything that World Food Program did. You know, while all these experts were focusing on their individual tasks, I was jumping around one thing to another. I had the bigger picture in my mind. I wanted to have that end goal where we could help World Food Program. We did. We saved World Food Program $34 million. 
we assisted them in reaching 3 million more people in less than half the time. And the most surprising thing was that my teammates and my faculty advisor came and told me that it's because of you. You pulled all of these wonderful people together. And that was it. It was a moment of epiphany. You know, being a jack of all was an advantage. My dynamic education and upbringing gave me the ability to think about multiple things at one point. I could look at things from a variety of perspectives, which others probably had a little bit of a difficulty. The path of becoming a leader suddenly became a bit more clear. You know, I know that I'm not the best engineer. I know that I'm not the best policy analyst. And I never will be. I know for a fact that I will never be the best writer. But I know that I'm, I can do all of these things and more just well enough to be an impactful leader. Yours truly, industrial engineer, policy analyst, somewhat of a writer, master of none but jack of all, Yuvrat Singh. Thank you. Life has a way of teaching us about ourselves one way or another. In our final story today, Columbia College student Julian talks about a conflict on the New York City subway that made him realize what he wanted to prioritize in his life. Hi. Uh, my name is Julian. I'm a junior in uh, um, Columbia College. Um, I'm super happy to be here. All of these stories have been ridiculously incredible. Um, thank you guys so much. Um, and I'd love to tell you all uh, a little short story about myself. So last week I was on the subway, on a rush, in a rush to a meeting downtown. I was also writing a email that was late. So in my lap, I had my laptop and my phone and my backpack. And when my train pulled up to the station, I didn't realize it was my stop until I turned around and saw that it was. And at that point, I had three seconds to get from my seat to the platform. So I scooped up all my stuff and bolted out the door. And when I did, I bumped into this guy. And this man was about 30 years old, um, much bigger than me. And in his arm, he had a child, an infant. And when I bumped into him, I bumped into the child as well. And the man says, say excuse me. And he hits me in the back of the head. Not too hard, but hard enough that you could hear it. And I walked up the steps as fast as I could. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And as I walked up, I thought about some of the things that I could have done instead. I could have turned around and I could have said, fuck you. I could have looked at him, then looked at his child, then back to him and been like, you're going to be a terrible father, and then walked away. Um, <laughs> that would have been great. Um, but, but I didn't. Um, and I've been told by a lot of people that, that one of those ways of retaliating um, is the right way to, to go. My parents have told me to, to stand up and fight when I see something wrong. Um, Coaches have told me, have some balls, grow a pair. Um, even my presidential candidates, one of them advocates violence on a daily basis, but the other one, her favorite story to tell is uh, when she beat back some bullies on her neighborhood block. But I didn't. I, I just sort of yielded. And I could say that that was because I'm, I'm too small and I didn't want to fight the guy or something. Um, but it was really because I was just tired. I'd, I'd had a long day. I was stressed out. I was running on three hours of sleep and two cups of coffee, you guys probably know how that feels. Um, and I didn't want to deal with it. And I, I think that if I look into the future, 
at least for the next couple of years, I'm going to be pretty busy as I was on the subway. I'm not going to have a lot of time, and I'm not going to have a lot of time in my life as well, and with that time, I want to be doing two things. I want to be doing what I want to do, and I want to be nice to people. The next time someone bumps me or pushes me, I might just yield again. I might say, okay, and walk away. The next time someone yells at me or steals my seat in Butler Library or does some other thing that assholes do, I might just smile and say, have a good day. I might just yield because the universe has too much fucked up stuff in it. And you could say that the opposite is true. You could say you need to push back as much as possible. And I would love to talk about that with you, but I don't have a lot of time right now. Um, I'm pretty stressed. I just came from an exam. I have to pee. It's been a long day. Um, so to you all, I yield as well. Thank you. storytellers tonight are proof that whether or not we choose our challenges, overcoming obstacles teaches us the perseverance and inspiration that shape who we are. Next time you're stuck with a challenge, ask yourself Kiara's question, do you persist? Thank you for listening. This episode was the last in our series with the Story Space program. If you missed out on an episode in this series, don't worry. Head on over to thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu to enjoy more stories by students. This episode was produced by Shanna Crumley, the Columbia Alumni Association, and the Office of University Life. To get event updates from the Office of University Life, Download the University Life app by visiting their website, universitylife.columbia.edu. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.